Hi everybody, it's Ellis here, the producer of the True Story London podcast. Now this episode is the season finale of our second season, and we just wanted to say a huge thank you to everybody who's listened, subscribed, and those of you who have given us a rating or shared an episode about with somebody. It really means a lot to us to be able to bring these stories to more and more people, so thank you. We'll be back with season three pretty soon in 2024, but for now, let's listen to this fantastic season finale with the brilliant Donna Freed. Welcome to the True Story London podcast. I'm Michelle Toth. In this podcast, we listen to a true personal story told live at one of our shows in London, followed by a conversation with the storyteller about their background, process, story themes, and more. Today's storyteller is Donna Freed, telling us the wild and fascinating story of finding out she was adopted and then the shocking revelation of just who her birth parents were. Donna has written an entire excellent memoir on this topic, so we have plenty to talk about in our discussion after the story. But first, let's listen to Donna, recorded live at 21 Soho. The gods that ruled my world when I was a kid growing up in New York were my parents, my older brother, my sister. These were not benign gods. These were more like the Greek variety with dire prophecies and thunderbolts. And I really didn't have any inkling that we were a weird family. But there were some indications. For instance, instead of getting a babysitter, my mother locked us in the basement. I thought that was normal. I was a super shy kid with a white blonde afro. And I didn't look like my family. I didn't act like my family. So when my sister, when I was six, my sister with long dark hair, olive skin, told me all three of us siblings were adopted, I just accepted it. It felt true. (laughs) We never spoke about our adoption after that. Not once. And I knew I couldn't ask my mother because with my mother, when I say the Greek gods, she was like Zeus, Athena, and the Furies combined. And you never knew if you were going to get fair-minded Athena or the vengeful Furies. So it was better to stay stum. But emotionally for me, that ripped me from the bosom of my family and especially my mother, who I slavishly adored. Because if we were adopted, I wasn't hers. And I was just a little free-floating speck in the universe, alone. See, my mother spent 10 years in bed. We assume she was uh, depressed, but it wasn't spoken about. And she only got out of bed to yell at us or make loveless meals that were mostly made out of hoarded dry goods, her hair, um, and fresh vegetables. Loads of them. See? So it wasn't all bad. And it really wasn't all bad. 
I had so much fun hanging out with my mom on her bed. She taught me French. We played checkers. You know, she would play my favorite song on the recorder, the Habanera from Carmen, and I would dance around. And for her, her bed was the seat of her power. She perched there and sort of ruled the family from there. And then all of a sudden, when I was 16, my mother got better. It was like a fog lifted and that screen of suspicion through which she looked at us sort of disappeared and she became loving and a great listener. It was like a miracle. It's like when the sun comes out after a diabolical thunderstorm and I basked in that warmth. But it took me a while to thaw because by then I was a sassy, surly little teenager and I was very suspicious of this all of a sudden really nice mom. So it wasn't until I was about 18 and leaving for university that I asked my mother if we were adopted. And she said, I know you know you were adopted through channels in the family. Like we were some mob family. And, you know, it was true. I did know. So then I asked her, well, why were we adopted? And it was like she was punched in the stomach. She turned beet red and she muttered conception problems, and her shame just mushroomed out of her, and I couldn't ask her anymore. But over the next couple of years, my mother and I gradually got closer and closer, and by my mid-20s, I felt like I could ask my mother anything. So we were making Thanksgiving dinner with the hair and the hoarded dry goods and the vegetables. And so I said, so why didn't you ever tell me we were adopted? And she said, well, it was no secret. I'm like, mom, we never talked about it once. Not ever, 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 ever. And by the way, what did you mean? I know you know through channels in the family. And she said, oh, well, remember when your sister told you you were adopted when you were six? And I was like, yes, I do remember that funnily enough. She said, oh, well, she came right to me and told me what she did. And you didn't say anything to me? And my mother said, I figured the cat was out of the bag. And if you had any problems with it, you would come to me. So at six, my world had exploded. And I was that tiny little free-floating speck in the universe, devastated, unloved, alone. Whereas for my mother, it was like, oh, well, there's one less thing to do. Tell Donna she's adopted, done. Done for me. And in all that time, I didn't think about my birth mother. When I got pregnant, when I had my son, I didn't think about the woman who had been pregnant with me. And if I'm honest, if I really did have an adoption fantasy, it was that my adoptive mother was actually my birth mom. I was the real one. And my brother even found his birth mother. And I was so judgy about it. I was like, you are not going to find anything fundamental about yourself from this other woman. And honestly, it didn't sound that great. When my brother finally met his birth mother, she took one look at him and said, Oh my God, you look just like my son. The one she kept, not him. And then my mother died. 
And again, I was that tiny little speck free floating in the universe, unwitnessed by a mother. So when my son asked me a year later, do you have a picture of that other mother who couldn't take care of you? I leapt at the chance to get another mother, any mother, didn't care. Yes, yes, please. But also what I realized was that underneath all that judgment about finding your birth parents was fear. Fear of rejection, obviously, because they already dumped you once, so clearly they could do it again. And then there's the fear of why were you adopted? Incest. Addiction. Rape. Just a fucking boring affair. I mean, what if you have to find out that your parents are just duds? And then I had to wait like months while the social worker prepared a report for me on my birth parents. And when she called me, she had this really sing-songy Midwest voice. And she said, Donna, I just want to prepare you because it's a really dramatic story. And I was like, lady, you are talking to the biggest fucking drama queen ever. So you tell me your little story, okay? And I'll let you know when there's some drama. All right. So she started on her little tale, and she says, well, your birth mother was working at an advertising agency when she met your married with four children father, and they started an affair. I'm like, what the fuck did I tell you? Fucking boring affair. (laughs) Anyway, so then she, she continued on. She said, when your mother became pregnant, they decided to fake her death and run away to Spain to raise you. Okay. The social worker also told me that my mother had been thrilled to conceive me. And that idea, those words, that I had been wanted and loved, did change something fundamental in me. My mother named me Rada, which means joy, And for the first week of my life, I slept in my mother's arms. According to the New York Times, my mother, Swiss Miss Mira Lindenmeyer, was reported drowned and presumed dead in July of 1966. When my father, Alvin Brody, went to claim the double indemnity insurance money from two insurance policies that my mother had recently made him the beneficiary of, he was suspected of her murder. But when they heard her voice on a police wiretap on Thanksgiving Day, the fraud was exposed. The jig was up. My mother's face, with my cheekbones, covers the front pages her hand resting on the swell of me in her belly. My father, who is a dead spit for my son, with our same blue eyes, has his arms pinned back in handcuffs. The social worker asked me, would you like to be reunited with your mother? And I was like, oh, you have to ask that lady, really, obviously. Yes, yes, I do. I need to meet this crazy woman. But then they couldn't find her. So I had to turn amateur detective. 
And finally, on the eve of Hanukkah, I called a number in Hollywood, Florida. It's a dumpy beach town between Fort Lauderdale and Miami. And I dialed the number. I'd like to speak to Mira Lindenmeyer. This is she. I was so relieved. Proper grammar. (laughs) I was born on March 28th, 1967. Does that mean anything to you? By which time we were both sobbing and she was shouting, It's you! It's a miracle! By the time I met my mother... She was semi-voluntarily bedridden. What is it with my mother's and retiring to bed? (laughs) Anyway, I hopped into bed next to her, being practiced in this, and I immediately noticed we had the same thumbs. And so whenever she missed me after that, she just looked at her thumb. Um, But there's no social template for this kind of relationship, especially because she didn't have any other children. She was going to mother me whether I liked it or not. And so one time I accidentally hung up the phone on her. And so when I called her back, she said, it's a good thing you called back because there's a special place in hell for children who hang up on their mothers. I was like, really, we're going there? Is it next to the special place in hell for moms who just drop the kids off, (laughs) abandon them? But she was also um, really proud of me, especially when at the age of 45, and after my third attempt, I finally passed my driver's test. And she said, I knew you'd pass. (laughs) But she was my mother and not my parent. The fact that we were both had been close to our mothers helped us approximate a mother-daughter relationship. And like my adoptive mother before her, she neglected to tell me very important information. Though without telling me, she made me power of attorney. And when in August of 2020, she developed striations on her lungs and couldn't breathe on her own, I was tasked with both ending her medical treatment and her life. It wasn't a perfect reunion, and neither of my mothers was perfect. But thank God, at least they were not boring. (laughs) Donna, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. It's so good to see you here. I'm wondering, how does that sound, hearing your story back after several months? It's always, I think, difficult to listen to your own voice. But actually hearing the story, I I was really glad that I was able to convey it as it felt. Most people tell a true story at our events, and they're starting from a blank page in terms of the writing and the development and the getting ready to share it. You were drawing from a 250-page memoir that you'd written. How did you engage that process to pick out the elements to include in a short, short, short version of a whole memoir? That was really difficult because I know the story from the inside out. I know how everything smelled. Even just hearing that story back, I pictured where I was standing in my old flat speaking to my birth mother for the first time. 
Mm. I was taken right back there. But so it's incredibly difficult to decide what the arc is going to be because it has to have a beginning and end in the middle. It has to have a theme. You have to be going somewhere. And so for me, it was really difficult. Like, what is the story I'm telling? I think you did a pretty brilliant job of giving us the highlights of your adoptive mother, Ruth, your birth mother, Mira, and then your own experience of becoming a mother. Did you feel good about that? I end? felt great about it. I think you were very generous in allowing me to do that broad picture. Similarly to the book, whereas most people aren't really interested in that first part because the true crime aspects. Oh, right. They want to go the, straight to the straight to the headlines. Yes, exactly. And I can understand that, but it is so clear from reading your book, from talking with you, from getting to know you that that first part of your story is absolutely fundamental to what Mira then becomes and what she means to you. So let's talk a little bit about that time. Just some of the details in there that just really stood out to me was the vividness of your memory and your imagination from when you were a kid. Just thinking back to you as a three-year-old, this is a story you tell in the book about having a specific memory at age three. Can you talk a little bit about that first memory? Because it really struck me. My earliest memory is from when I was three, when we lived in a house in Queens. And my parents had a bedroom, my brother had a bedroom, and my sister had a sort of little sliver of a room. So my crib was placed in my brother's room. And I remember my father coming in in the morning and leaning into the crib to check underneath me to see if I had pissed my pants in the night. And I had. Like a baby does. like Or yeah. a toddler. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I remember his disappointment, and I remember shame feeling shame. It's my first memory. I just thought the ability to recount a specific memory like that and attach such a strong emotion to it, it just made sense to me that on some level, it seems like you were aware, observant, vigilant from an extraordinarily young age. I think I was. And I think the word abuse is hard for me to use, but observant, vigilant, those are experiences when you feel that your surroundings are unstable mm -hmm. or volatile. Things change and you don't know why. There's not a reason why. Uh, so you're always on the lookout. I also think that's part of being the youngest is that you are in a just a more observant place. You know, everyone's yeah. talking before you know how to talk. Everyone's running around before you know how to run around. So you are in a you know, you are stuck in the corner. In I sense. think that's super interesting because birth order, when I first heard about birth order, I was like, what is this BS? Like, this makes no sense. Then I started tuning into it and it is such a real thing. So I'm the second oldest in a family of five, but oldest girl. And that's a very specific role. And I'm sure my baby sister, who's not at all a baby anymore, but, but she's still the baby. Exactly. <laughs> would have lots to talk about with you. Yes. Like she had a very, she grew up in a different family. Well, that is the thing. Everyone's experience is very different. And I would say, becomes apparent from my story, that my mother wasn't always well. Yeah. But my brother's experience of her when he was, you know, the youngest was incredibly different. The first six years of his life, which are incredibly formative, were very, very different 
than the first six years of my life. But so many people are hypervigilant without ever having anything to attach it to. But you had this quite traumatic moment at six of feeling severed from your family by getting this news exacerbated by not talking about it. Yes, being left alone and knowing that this was not good information. I wasn't told like, yay, we're adopted. We have superpowers. We are awesome. We were chosen. Chosen, yeah. There is a Um, certain way to frame this that is quite positive. Yes. I mean, you know, some kids come from the heart, some come from the belly, you know, any, any number of things you can say. I mean, my father did eventually say there's different ways to create a family. I think I was 21 when he said that. You know, it's six. The way I was told was it was a negative and it was shameful and it was secret. Otherwise, everyone would have talked about it. But then it also became very apparent in the same moment. Everyone else knew except me. You know, it felt like all the good stuff had happened and then the also ran came. Wow. You know, so it was a double feeling of being left out. What is it about mothers when we were young who didn't talk about anything? What was going on for them? I think for my mother, if you if you think about the expectations and the limitations. My mother was super smart. She went to Wellesley. She got a PhD in psychology, studied the wrong thing and hated it. And then ended up teaching psychology, which also was not really her happy place. And with that background, you know, thought she'd be a great mom. And then couldn't have kids. And then became overwhelmed, but couldn't admit it. Wouldn't admit it to my father. You know, they colluded on that. My father referred to my mother as the CEO of the household. So he was in charge of what, you know, when he went to work, he was in charge of what he did. But she was the CEO at home. So whatever crazy decisions she made, like lock the kids in the basement or spank this one or, you know, whatever, he went along with. But that was his house. Mm -hmm. And he could have made a different decision on that. You know, he would have had a bit of marital strife. I think the one time my father defied my mother, she walked out for a week. Oh, wow. That was very scary. I mean, she was scary, but we didn't want her to go. (laughs) (laughs) She's still your mom. (laughs) Exactly. And that's the thing. And that's why I always have, there's such difficulty with me, like I say, to use the word abuse. But I do have, I have a lot of forgiveness in me. It wasn't easy. It wasn't easy inside the home. It wasn't easy outside the home. I think certainly whatever conception problems they had, and conception problems are a couple not being able to conceive, Mm -hmm. but I'm sure it was dumped on my mother. Oh, sure. At that time. Of course. And heaped on them. Mm -hmm. And then judging of, are you good enough to be given these children? You know, whereas, you know, I could just have one. You know what I mean? But there's that very moving part of your memoir where your parents are very egoless about forming a family. And you reference your father saying families can be made in all kinds of ways. So there's so much dimension here, especially in your mother, who's really a star character in your life and in your book. And it is easy to forgive her as a reader for some of these extreme positions, if you will, that she took, (laughs) because she really did have some quite remarkable characteristics. I'm kind of curious, as you think about your two mothers, and you think about nature and nurture, which is such a fundamental theme, when you think about what characteristics you see in yourself that you were gifted or that you took on from your mothers, can you talk about that? What's Ruth? What's Mira? What's Donna? There is 
so much of both of my mothers and me. And like I said, they had some similarities, but they were poles apart as well. And my mother, Ruth, always felt that nurture brought out to varying degrees what nature had put in. And I do think that's true, because if I, with this knowledge that I have, having found my birth parents, look back at my life, it's very different than the lens that I looked at it prior to finding my birth parents. So I always felt that my brother, sister, and I, you know, we're very, very different, but there's definitely a freedness to us. Mm. <laughs> it's definitely a recognizable, <laughs> slightly offbeat, something a little outre, something a little offbeat. That is our freedness. That is our collective experience of having grown up in my parents' house. And I would say both of my parents, both Ruth and Sai, their skepticism, their intelligence, their questioning of things, they're not accepting just the prescribed answer, going beyond, that is definitely something I got from both of them. And Mira's, there's an antisocial element of Mira, a reserve. She was the most reserved person I had ever met in my life. Just retiring from life by choice. But then being a little like, well, why didn't they chase me after I retired from life? The revelation of your adoption caused you to relook at your family and your role in it at a very young age, which is something that you might not do until you're older. How do you think that shaped you? Because your teenage years and growing into adulthood seems to have been really influenced by this early realization of difference or otherness. What happened to me in that moment? In adoption circles, they talk about the primal wound being when you were separated from your birth mother or your birth family. For me, that moment when I was six, that was my primal wound because my family was my world. We weren't that sociable of a family. So everyone in it was, these were huge people to me. They were everything. One, they were really interesting and wacky. I mean, even I knew that then. And fascinating and wonderful and terrifying and terrible. But they were everything to me. And that knowledge cast me out. Mm. I wasn't theirs. I wasn't my mother's. They hadn't bothered to tell me. I was that inconsequential. And so then, actually, what happened in the vacuum of feeling like my parents were sort of taken away from me, I was at a remove, was that my siblings sort of came to the fore. Mm. And it was sort of us against them in my mind. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we were not so much my brother, but my sister and I in particular sort of just colluded against the enemy <laughs> from an early age, which was created such a conflict in me because I still really idolized my mother and I idolized my sister. So I felt like sort of almost an imposter. And when you feel like that as a kid, you don't value yourself as much. And you start doing things that a little bit more risk-taking, a little riskier. I became very secretive because, one, I was scared. So everything you admitted to could get you in trouble. So I would lie about things. Also, anything you did would get you in trouble. So you may as well do anything. If you're going to get in trouble anyway, you may as well steal the stuff or, you know, and sneak out and kiss boys. And they're either going to find out all of it or none of it. You're still going to get in trouble. So may as well do it. 
And so that life, like growing up in that way, clearly affected you. And then you have this dramatic realization about your birth mother. And then you attempt to capture it all in a book. I'm just curious, (laughs) how did you make that decision to write as a mechanism of expression or understanding? And how did it go? How has it gone? I found out things through writing this memoir. You'd think, you know, I've, I already lived through it, you know, <laughs> none of it's news to me, you know, and yet being able to put it down and look around it from behind mm-hmm. or also, you know how there's family stories, there's family lore and you don't examine it because it's family lore. Like Michelle is the one that did this yeah. or did that. And then she moved to London and, you know, <laughs> because she's the blah, blah one. And just that moment that we were talking about earlier, you know, thinking my mother became depressed right around the time when I was six, when I was told. Obviously, in writing the book, I realized, well, that can't possibly be true. That was me as a six-year-old conflating what I was observing. If I was so scared that I wouldn't even ask them about being adopted, clearly there were signs that all was not well, that I didn't feel oh so great about them. It was things like that that I could sort of more pull apart and sort of loosen the weave of that feels so nice to get some air in some of the stories that are really quite heavy from my childhood. And trust me, I didn't put nearly the darkest shit in there. You don't want to upset people. Well, (laughs) (laughs) I think there's two big things coming out of what you're saying. So one is the process of re-examining any part of your life, not to mention your whole life or the biggest themes of your life can help you make sense of it. Mm -hmm. And you figure out that there is more than one way to look at any situation, especially with distance and especially with the process of getting it out of your head, out of your heart, out of your body, onto a page. So then you can look at it. That's such a healthy, interesting, informative process. And that's what most people do when they work on a true story. You've just done it in both forms, like the short form and the long form. The other thing that can happen when you tell your version of a story is you bump into other people's versions of the story. So I'm curious, what has writing the story, telling the story, what has that done in terms of your relationships? That's been difficult because I write about real people and my husband is in the book. Mm-hmm. My son is in the book. My siblings are in the book. Everyone else is dead, thank God. So, you know, for a memoir, it has a high body count, but still. <laughs> but yes, and that was tricky because as we were saying before, everyone's memories, experience, and childhood was different, even in the same family. And then as adopted people, another tricky thing is you sort of feel like you don't own your own story. And then who owns a story in a family? Are you allowed to tell your story when it overlaps with somebody else's story? And it was hardest with my siblings because we did have a tricky upbringing. And one of the things I came to realize is that I deflect a lot of the things that happen to us with humor. And by my forgiving of my parents, I have normalized some of our traumas. And that's not mine to do for anybody else. So I really tried to write from my perspective, my experience of our mother. But of course, that's tricky. There's been good and bad in that, but I do feel like I've laid down the gauntlet. And 
There's another piece of stepping into my writing, and that's been difficult. But so this feels like, well, I've stepped in now. There's no stepping in. It's like coming out of the closet. There's no going back in. Yeah. <laughs> so you've stepped into your own, having your own voice, expressing yourself fully in a very, very public way. Mm-hmm. And their mediums of expression are different, like your, the rest of your family. They're not countering with their own memoir. Yeah. Yeah. And it is a bit unfair because as I'm the one telling the story, then that's assumed to be true. Mm. So if you have a differing narrative and you don't have that medium, and I, I understand that point and I take that point. That is why, I mean, my husband helped me edit the book, but I also asked my son to read it because I was exposing other things about myself that he maybe didn't know. And was he comfortable with what I was saying about him? about me, etc. But yeah, it was also because I'm not just writing about one family. I'm also writing about my birth family mm-hmm. and what my half-brothers and sister, because my birth father was married with four children when my parents had an affair. And then after he came out of prison, he went back both to my birth mother and his wife and had another child. So... So ripple effects from... yes. But so I was also writing about their family with people I didn't know. And they had the lived experience of their father going to prison, of being on welfare, you know, after this happened, of it being in all the newspapers, whereas I didn't. Right. So I needed to be sensitive about that as well. Did it ever cause you to hesitate? Did this all factor into your decision to publish? Absolutely. At first, I was going to do a podcast, and I wrote a radio play about this. And it has been difficult to see what form I wanted it to take. Should I fictionalize it? Should I... But the true story is so dramatic. It's, yeah. It's like to fictionalize something that's so that stands on its own as true drama... Would I'm sure would have been a really difficult decision. Well, and also, I'm not that good at plot. And as <laughs> I've been blessed with so much narrative, like, well, why make it up when it's when it's already nutsy enough already? Truth being stranger than fiction, to borrow a cliche. So when you went searching for your birth family, was your birth father still alive? Sadly, no. He was living in New York when I was still living in New York. So wow. we moved to London in 2005. He died in New York in 2004. Oh, my gosh. In the East Village. Like, I must have walked by him like 20 times. Wow. Because he sounds like a very interesting character. And I like how you can recognize that some of your personality, some of your search for drama and this lust for life (laughs) is traceable biologically to this man. I do think the world and I were very lucky that I did not grow up with Alvin. (laughs) Because I think we would have been like grifting, (laughs) grifting together. So yes, he was a man who preferred grift to graft, it has to be said. I mean, my half-brothers, you know, immediately said, had he met me, the first thing he would have done was ask me for money. Which I'm like, that sounds, yeah, that sounds true. So Donna, it's interesting. There's so much like specific drama in what you've lived And you are very honest about craving or at least not wanting a boring life. Do you feel like you're succeeding at not having a boring life? (laughs) Absolutely. Because not only I can find joy and tragedy every day on the tube, on the bus, with my friends. Everyday life is exciting. So it doesn't even matter if I didn't have these big narrative upsets. and. Oh, wait, wait, wait. I'm going to challenge you on that one. Yes. Really? 
Yes. You really sure that you would be just as happy with your life if it didn't have any of these dramatic moments? I think I would have to create them if, <laughs> if they didn't happen. No, but, but I yes, mean that no. I mean that with empathy. Yeah. Depending on how we're wired, we sometimes are really looking for impact in the world. Like we want to matter. We want to have a sense that what we do is going to influence someone or something. And I just sense that. I think we have a sisterhood yes, moment yes. in that in that kind of thing. It's sort of like go big or go home. Yeah. You know, may yeah. as well make a splash. And I also think I spent so much of my childhood being scared and not wanting to be seen and make myself smaller. And I've really busted out of that. And part of that is writing this memoir and saying, you know what? Boom, throwing down the gauntlet to myself and to everyone else. I don't care. Come look. I, for one, am so glad that you've made that choice to write about your life, to tell your stories, because they're amazing. And I can't wait to hear more. Thank you so much for sharing them with us. Thank you, Michelle. And thank you for creating True Story. Thanks for listening. For more information about today's storyteller and conversation, check out the show notes. The True Story London podcast is hosted by me, Michelle Toth. Our producer is Ellis Ballard. Our theme music is by Sea Noise. Live recordings were provided by Laughing Around and recorded at 21 Soho. More information about our live shows and workshops can be found at truestorylondon.com. And just one more thing. If you haven't already, please subscribe or follow and rate us on your favorite podcast platform. It really does help us to reach more people. Thanks, and we'll see you for another episode soon.